0: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we broadcast and acknowledge all First Nations people connected to the land from where you might be listening. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be. I'm author and presenter Marley Silver, and in this mini-series, Game Changers, we'll hear stories from elite Australian athletes, women at the top of their game. There wasn't a group of one-legged runners I could go join. I had to be with the able-bodied and that just freaked me out. We'll uncover the challenges. It didn't go so well. I got pulled out of the water by the scuba divers. I took a bit of a hit, definitely bruised my ego a lot. On my first race,
1: I crashed three times in the same jump. The triumphs. People come up and they'll say, that was an amazing race. It wasn't, that was an amazing race for a girl. That was an amazing race, full stop.
0: That was the first moment when I really went like, wow, this sport is so empowering. The setbacks. I was looking at my arms, I was on the stretcher and I was like, no, please don't tell me I crashed. No, not the Olympics. And ultimately, how these athletes overcome their fears each and every day to become game changers in their fields. Fear is always present, and I'll be shocked if someone says that it isn't. I definitely feel a lot of fear every time I get onto the BMX track. You just learn how to manage it. In this episode, I want you to meet seven-time world champion slalom canoeist Jess Fox. This is Jess describing the Tokyo Olympics.
1: I had all the feels, all the tears. I cried so much at the Olympics. There were tears of joy, tears of frustration, tears of happiness for teammates. They don't tell you how much you cry, but it was just so full of emotion. But I think that's what makes the Olympics so special as well. It's you really follow the athlete's journey and the highs and the lows, and I experienced you know, both of them and more. Being on that podium, hearing the anthem and having that heavy gold medal around my neck, it was just amazing.
0: Jess Fox won gold fighting the Rapids at the Tokyo Olympics and it's a feeling that's still sinking in.
1: Oh my goodness, um, it's still hard for me to sort of realise what's happened and put it into words and, and I don't think I've, I've fully comprehended what it feels like, you know, it was just a amazing feeling but all the emotions happened because the last 48 hours before my C1 win with just this roller coaster of emotion. So I think it definitely made that victory way more special and sweeter. And I think just being able to share it with my mum, who's my coach and my family who's been so supportive of me and along the journey with me, it's it makes it so much more special to be able to share it with them as well. So it's all those years of hard work that just come down to that one race, that one 105 seconds and to put it together and do what I know how to do and pull it off, it was just incredible.
0: This is kind of crazy, but Jess Fox is actually considered the best paddler in the world. She competes in both kayaking and slalom canoe events. Going into the Tokyo Games, she was pegged as one of the favourites to win. So the pressure? Well, it was on.
1: I think, you know, the media definitely hyped it up with, you know, she's won a silver medal, she's won a bronze medal, only the gold is missing. So. For me, it was about making it through each round and being able to put down my best paddling.
0: So at Tokyo, Jess had two shots at Olympic gold. First up is the kayak event, known as the K1. She'd already won a silver and a bronze medal in London and Rio in this same event. And now was a chance to take home the gold.
1: I felt really good in the heats, really good in the semi-final. And then in the final, unfortunately, I hit uh, gate four and then I hit the last upstream gate. And because of that early touch, which is a two-second time penalty, I guess I got closer to the finish and I was trying to get a bit more time and scrape more time and uh, take more risks, and that's where I incurred that second penalty. And so I crossed the finish line and, and I saw my time and I saw that I was third. And on one hand, I'd made these mistakes in that final and I was devastated and so frustrated with myself that I had. But on the other hand, I'd really fought the whole way down. Like the whole run, I didn't feel good. It didn't flow well. Like like I was fighting the water. And I fought so hard to get to that finish line. And in the end I was rewarded with that bronze medal. And I think it was a, a testament to my fitness and my strength and my technique that I had such a fast time despite that mistake and and that I was still able to get onto the podium. So Yeah, that was uh, the first day, the first event. And I remember crying in the taxi on the way home because I was so frustrated with myself and then having to kind of come back the next day for the C1 was really tough.
0: After winning that bronze, I can tell you're kind of describing your shift in your mindset from one of frustration to talking about it you know, being rewarded and, and the fact that you, you could have come fourth or you could have missed out on a medal altogether. I imagine it's a really tough thing to do mentally. Is that something you've had to work on or how do you do that? Or is it something that's just a bit more natural for you in how you deal with things?
1: You know, mentally and emotionally, I've always been a fighter, I think, and able to bounce back, but it's definitely something you have to work on. And and I'm fortunate now, I've got a few years of experience under my belt and i really drew on that in those moments because I looked back on you know my career and I had this moment in 2017 where I was the favorite to win the canoe event and I came sixth in that final and I was absolutely shattered and it was emotionally draining to try and put myself back in that mindset to race the kayak the next day but I did and I ended up winning the world title and so I really sort of told myself, you know, you've you've been through this before, you can do it again, and you're not defined by this experience and you've trained so hard for the last five years. So really it was about shifting that mindset. And it came from the work I'd done, you know, with coaches, with my mum who's also my coach, with my dad. And I think that it's a build up of that to get into that mindset, to not let it derail you when it goes wrong. So I really had to tell myself, You've won an Olympic medal, it's an amazing achievement and how lucky are you that you get another shot at this. You've got another opportunity. And the C1 event, it was the first time that it was in the Olympics. So just an amazing experience to even be on that start line with all those women representing Australia and being the first woman to represent Australia at the Olympics and the canoe events. So I really tried to focus on that.
0: Well, talk me through that next event. You know, where was your mind at going into that the next day? You have to shake it off and just dive straight back into it.
1: I remember waking up in the morning and, and going for a walk around the village and putting some music on and it was actually funny because I was thinking, oh, it's so good to have a mask on because I can have my own little karaoke party, you know, like <laughs> mouthing, mouthing words to these songs and people can't see and I don't look crazy. So it kind of was something to sort of lift my mood and get me feeling happy and not deflated. You know, I think that was always about smiling, lifting my my shoulders, having body language that was tall and strong and open and confident and not deflated or slouched or eyes looking down. So it's amazing how much that can affect you. So I really was thinking about all those things. And, yeah, with the semi, I just wanted to make it through smoothly, paddle well, feel good. And then I made the final and I was in the exact same position as I was for the kayak. And I remember thinking, this is a pivotal moment because you can let yourself go back to the kayak and think, well, maybe it's all going to happen the same way because I'm last to start, I'm going to know the times, I'm going to feel the pressure or I'm going to rise to this challenge and embrace it and enjoy the moment. And I'm so glad that I was able to do the, the latter because it was definitely a very difficult and incredible but really difficult moment and I actually had to throw up between mm-hmm. my race my semi and my final because I was that nervous. But I remember thinking that everyone was telling me, you deserve to win this, you deserve to win this. And I just kept thinking, no, you deserve to do your best today because I can't control what my competitors do. You know, you you never deserve a win just because you've won everything else doesn't mean you're going to win this one. So I really told myself I just deserve to do the best run I can because I've done all the work.
0: I think I remember seeing your mum, who's also your coach, as you've mentioned, say something quite similar just after your race in an interview about, no, it's not about deserving it. I think that for people who aren't professionals, that sounds a bit odd, but hearing you explain it like that, it does make so much sense that it's not about deserving it, but you fought for it and you got there.
1: Yeah. I think in sport, it's not always the favorite or the best who wins on the day. It's the one who does the job and who does their best work when others don't. So I think it's really hard because on paper, you know, I looked, at, you can get frustrated. And on paper, I'm like, no, but I should have won. I deserve to win. <laughs> but you don't, you know, you're only as good as your last race and your next race. And you've got to always prove yourself and you've got to always earn it.
0: When you're watching the Olympics, you know, as a spectator like myself, I think we fall into feeling like we're experts on every single sport <laughs> that we watch, but we're not, you guys are. Could you please explain the difference between the K1 and the C1 events that you competed in in your sports?
1: Yeah, so the kayak and the K1, you're in a seated position with a double-bladed paddle and the shape of the boat is a little bit different because of that. And then in the canoe, the C1, you're in a kneeling position and sort of strapped into your boat and you're using a single-bladed paddle. So generally you're paddling on one side and then switching and paddling on the other side. And we do the same course down the rapids. It's exactly the same for the kayak and the canoe. Uh, What changes is just the way that we do it, the stroke pattern that we have, maybe the, the tactics that I choose. And generally the kayak is faster than the canoe.
0: Jess's win in the canoe event at the Tokyo Olympics was the very first time that this particular race was open to women at the Olympic Games. And Jess actually played a massive part in making that happen.
1: It was amazing to be part of that group of pioneering women. We were fortunate that, you know, the Aussie team really embraced the C1 event early on and and realised how important it was that women had equal opportunities at the Olympics. So Australia really went hard and pushed for us to be included at the World Championships. So in 2010, that was the first official world championships for the women's canoe. But it took 11 years to then see us at the Olympic Games. So it took a lot of campaigning, a lot of hard work from a lot of people in, in our sport and in Australia to make that happen. And I was so proud to be one of those women doing that big push. And, and then to see us all there in Tokyo was extremely special, so rewarding. It was obviously really hard for my sport to lose the Men's Canoe Double event, the Men's C2, because to be able to have the two events for the women, two for the men, we had to lose one of the men's events. So that was really challenging, and that's what, I guess, took so long, was to dismantle the mentality that women couldn't do canoe, and that's why there's only one event for the women, which is the kayak. You know, it was tradition, and we had to kind of break that down and and prove that we were capable and that we deserved to be there. So I think this mentality that we're not good enough yet really had to change and and people are finally shifting in their attitudes and realizing that we deserve to be at the Olympics and that we, you know, have worked really hard, just as hard as the men. And we're almost just as good as the men, if not better in some ways. Mm -hmm. And, And what's cool is that now the men do look at the C1 women when they're preparing for their C1 races. They do watch us. They do analyze our races. And that's pretty cool because normally it's the other way around.
0: Is that why up until this point, the C1 had been reserved to only men that, you know, this tradition or this even underestimation of what women are capable of?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it all started as a question of strength. Traditionally, the men's canoe event, you're using a single bladed paddle and you're in a kneeling position. And I think I remember hearing, oh, just old, old stories that originally they thought that it would affect women's reproductive organs to be kneeling in that position in the C1 and that we didn't have the strength to be able to paddle the canoe like the men. So that's why they couldn't do it. So I think that's from there is where the the techniques have evolved. And for me, I do this technique called switching. So I paddle on one side until it gets tired or until I can't do a certain move that way. And then I swap to the other side, whereas traditionally the men have always been Lefty or righty, and they stick to that side. But I think, yeah, the women's canoe, we see a lot more girls switching just because when we started, we've come from either a kayak background or we didn't have the strength to do the way the men do it. And this was just the best way and the fastest way for us to do the course. And at first, people would say, oh, that's cheating. That's not how you do it. That's wrong. You know, if you can't do it the right way, don't do it at all. And I think now they're looking at us and they're thinking, oh, well, actually, you know, the sport is evolving and the women are doing what works for them and they're actually going bloody fast. So let's learn from them. I can already see what it's doing and it's, it's incredible. You know, for me, it's always coming back to, you can be what you can see. And I think that's really important here and really important in women's sport in general. And I think it's, for me, it's really special when people come up and say, that was an amazing race. You know, it wasn't, that was an amazing race for a girl. You know, that was an amazing race, full stop.
0: How often do you feel like you're in that flow state when you're paddling and and how do you get there?
1: It's always my goal to try and get into that flow state because once you're in that state, it's just this amazing feeling of everything being in control. And, you know, I'm I'm going down Whitewater Rapids and, and these gates are coming at me, but it feels like I can see it happening and I know exactly what I need to do and how to react to everything. For me, it's about taking those deep breaths before my race. You know, I'm sitting in the start pool with a minute to go and I'm just focusing on gate one, saying some key words to myself, like calm and confident. And then hopefully I start off well and I can build my run and be in that flow state considering that, generally,
0: how do you overcome those external pressures? Like you've spoken about coming into Tokyo as the favourite and the media telling this big story, or even if it is something like contending with the weather, how is it that you block it out?
1: I think I really internalize it and focus on myself and Tokyo was huge just the amount of media and pressure and I didn't read any newspapers articles or any online articles I didn't watch any interviews that I did or any other interviews or news that was coming through I just ignored everything because all of that sort of adds up and actually the morning of the canoe I went downstairs and in the village the Olympic team had set up you know TVs with the channel 7 feed and Like a lounge area, and I walked downstairs to get a coffee, and I just saw Jess Fox, Mrs. Gold, and it was my dad getting interviewed on the TV. And I just thought, Oh, wow, okay, cool, thanks. (laughs) And um, this is how it is. So I sort of, yeah, really tried to block it out and focus on the things that I can control, which is my recovery, my food intake, my preparation, and the things that I can't control, which is everything else, basically. So I think keeping it simple and, and at the end of the day knowing that it's just me on the water and I'm here to do something that I love to do, remembering that I love to do it, even if it's really hard and challenging in those moments, and at the end of the day knowing that it's only 100 seconds and then the sun will rise tomorrow. So it was really an amazing experience to go through that you can't really prepare for except for at an Olympics in a way. As a little side fact, Jess
0: is pretty much paddling royalty. Both her parents have competed in the Olympics. Her mum, Miriam Fox alsami for France, and her dad, Richard Fox, for Great Britain. Which means for Jess, most of her earliest memories were on the water.
1: We were pretty much born in kayaks and my grandpa in Marseille was the president of the kayak club, so... I basically grew up around the sport, either on the riverbank or playing, you know, in the dirt, throwing sticks in the water or jumping on rafts. And and those are sort of my earliest memories. Um, I don't actually know when I first sat and took my first strokes. I assume it was very young because I remember we would always take the kayaks with us when we'd go on holidays and I didn't really enjoy it. Like It was always a chore and you're doing what your parents do and it's hard work. But when I was 11, I broke my arm doing gymnastics and my physio said, you should do some rehab, you should do some paddling because it will strengthen your arms up again. So that was my rehab and in the end that's how I got into it and started to really enjoy it and I was at the age where I could go on the rapids and that's just, yeah, that's where the love for it came because the white water compared to the flat water, it was just so much more exciting and I absolutely loved it. I had those first few years paddling down the rapids following mom or dad like a little, you know, duckling following the mother duck <laughs> and just, yeah, making my way down and overcoming the fears of of each wave and each stopper and, and learning how to capsize and come back up. And I think I was just hooked by that adrenaline rush.
0: And what was it like, you know, growing up, falling more in love with the sport and having your parents and their success stories as your influence?
1: It was, it was hard because I knew what they'd achieved in their careers and, and my dad and, and my mum were, you know, the greatest in the sport. And so I was probably quite nervous about being compared to them and not being up to their level and, and not wanting to be compared to them. And my first Junior World Championships in um, France, actually, in Foi I was 16, and I could understand what the loudspeaker was saying in French. And he was saying things like, her mum was the queen of the river. Can Jessica be the princess of the water? And <laughs> I could just feel these expectations, I guess, from everyone else about what could the fox daughter do. And um, yeah, I won the Junior World Championships. And I think from that moment, I thought, actually, I'm my own person. So I think I sort of tried to to set my own path and, and really sh- tell myself at least that I was their daughter and and I could learn so much from them. And I have, you know, they've been amazing role models and coaches and have guided me through the highs and lows of my career. But I'm also my own person, my own athlete, and and I'm building my story as well.
0: Yeah, it it must be an interesting balance of Admiring them and, and also wanting to make a name for yourself. I can imagine, though, the lessons and the ways they can empathize with you when it came to your first Olympics and that whole experience would have been super beneficial. Were there any particular lessons or bits of advice they gave you before, um, yeah, you got to the Olympics that really helped you?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, they'd competed at the Olympics in um, Barcelona and Atlanta, but then they were also coaches after that at Sydney. Athens and Beijing so they had a lot of experience and you know at each Olympics mum used to make this like home movie where you know she'd filmed the athletes she'd filmed the village life she filmed the bus routes and the competition and that sort of thing and I remember watching those every time she made them and, and showed them to the athletes or to the kids in in the club and those really inspired me and they also really helped me ahead of London because I'd seen inside the village in a way But I also competed at the Youth Olympic Games in Singapore in 2010. And I think that really helped me too, because I'd gotten that experience of a multi-sport event, you know, being part of an Australian team, being in an Olympic village. And yeah, all those experiences really helped me heading into London, because I didn't feel overwhelmed, you know, in the Olympic village, like a lot of athletes can do. You can't really prepare for an Olympics. It's such an amazing and, and different event. You sort of, You have to go to an Olympics to be prepared for an
0: Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And today, your mom is your coach. Knowing that my dad was an athlete as well, and um, I don't have any of his sporting prowess, but I let him coach one of my teams for one season. And then I was like, never again, because it's way (laughs) too personal. What is that relationship like? and Do you think it's more advantageous or not so having that really close relationship?
1: It's definitely not for everyone and I think sometimes it's even harder in like a team sport setting but for us I think mum was the coach of the Australian team and I basically integrated her squad when I made the team and when I qualified so I think she's always been very professional we've always had other people in our squad and I haven't felt favoritism in that you know I was never the first one to to get the feedback or to get the video review or to do the debrief or to you know, walk the course with her. I was always kind of the last one who got the <laughs> choice. So obviously that's changed now as, you know, at the Olympics I'm the only athlete there with her. But I think, um, yeah, we have this amazing relationship where I think our personalities are well matched and we get along super well. She knows me better than anyone and I think that's always been what our relationship's been built on. It's it's always about trust in an athlete and coach relationship and it's not a one-way street, you know, it's a two-way communication system where she'll you know ask for my opinion and ask for my feedback in how we work and how we how we approach a race and things like that it's not like this is how you do it and there's one way we really work on it together so I'm really proud of our team and and our relationship and I'm super grateful to have her alongside it's hard for her to wear both hats I think the coach and mum hat but she does it well
0: Jess's mum is obviously an integral part of her sporting life and her dad's also always pushed her to be her best.
1: He did a lot of training sessions with me before school on the flat water and he used to beat me all the time and I remember the one time, the day that I finally beat him, it was like the highlight of the year. to <laughs> finally beat him on the flat water and I think I was like 16 when it finally happened. But to even today he still gives me a good run for my money. But I remember this moment in... Um, Slovenia in Tartsin. it was the world championships in 2010 and both of them were there actually and I was going down this drop and it's like the biggest drop on the world tour I think. It's just this really fast ramp that's quite steep and at the bottom there's this big white water wave. We call it a stopper because it literally stops you in your tracks and I just couldn't get through it. I kept falling in. I kept getting smashed and I sort of got out and started walking back up and I just said I'm done, like I'm over it. I'm crying. I'm just exhausted and dad said go back up go back up do it again and I was like what can't you see I've just been pummeled like I'm tired and he obviously knew I was capable of doing it and deep down I knew that I was capable of doing it and it was just about sort of getting over that fear getting back on the horse and I remember walking back up to the start being like what kind of parents send their 16 year old daughter down these whitewater rapids to get absolutely (laughs) smashed what am I doing what are they doing But I made it through that run and obviously felt really good and proud and uh, I knew it was the right thing to do at the time, but there was always that underlying frustration with them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Your parents both individually at one point held the title of best individual paddler of all time. And now in some ways, because you do have this gold medal and everything you've achieved, you've uh, surpassed them both. And, And what does that feel like to know that and how do they feel about it?
1: I mean, they were just so proud. I I wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even know that that was a title that I could achieve at this stage in my career. And I remember being at the World Championships in Brazil and the media guy from the ICF said to me, you know, that if you win today, you overtake your mom as the greatest woman of all time. And if you win tomorrow, you overtake your dad as the greatest of all time. And I just (laughs) thought, what? why are you telling me this? Ah, Like I just sort of tried to block it out. But then um, when I actually did it, yeah, it was incredible. And yeah, they, they were obviously so proud and it's as much their title as it is mine. You know, it stays in the family and they've helped me get to this point in my career. And I, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be here without them.
0: Regulating her emotions is really important for Jess.
1: In fact, she says
0: being able to bounce back from a setback can make or break your sporting career. Being able to
1: switch off from an emotional upset because it can be really draining when you don't perform the way you want or when you're under a lot of stress from other areas like an injury and letting that self-doubt creep in is the most dangerous thing you can do. So being able to switch off and have that positive um, self-talk and belief in yourself is super important. Even for me just before the Olympics, I had a little injury just 10 days out from the Games and I couldn't paddle C1 And I had five days where I could only do kayak and the C1 I was getting really nervous about because I couldn't try any of the hard moves and I hadn't been able to practice what I wanted to in the lead up because of this injury on my oblique. So, you know, sitting on that start line in the canoe final, I could have had every negative self-doubt creep in and think, well, you weren't able to train last week. You haven't actually practiced this. Your competitors were training, you know, they were able to do it, but you haven't. So being able to trust your skill and have the confidence that you can do what it takes, even if you haven't had the preparation, even if you've had a setback, I think that requires a lot of mental strength.
0: It's that mental strength which got Jess back on track for a second chance at a gold medal in Tokyo. And while overcoming fear is a challenge that most athletes face, for Jess, the nature of that fear is an ever-evolving beast.
1: I think it's changed over the years. I mean, at the start, it was fear for my I guess, safety because I didn't feel like I had the strength or the ability to get through the rapids, you know, starting out. It's more about a, a skill based fear. Whereas I think now the fear is different. You know, it's about letting people down or not being at the level you want to be. And it's that fear of failure. And I think for me, fear has never been a good thing. Like I, it's not something that motivates me. It's something I have to reframe and something that I have to talk my way out of in a way. So it's funny because between the kayak and the canoe, I had to do a lot of work on that. And normally I like to journal and just sort of write a few things down between races or before a race to sort of think out my race plan or inspire myself or whatever it is. And it might just be a few lines, but between the kayak and the C1, it was like five pages of just getting my thoughts out on paper, getting any fears out on paper whatever it was that was holding me back was just getting on that page and getting out. And then I could sort of feel more clear and confident. And so, yeah, I think my relationship to fear has definitely evolved as I've gotten more mature and changed as an athlete at this point in my career. So it's always about being able to overcome it in a way that I know how, and that is just by trusting myself and having confidence in my ability.
0: So you're recognised as the best paddler in the world and you're fresh off another big win. What is it like to be recognised as the best in the world at something? Like I can only imagine that's sort of surreal.
1: I think it's something that I'll look back on once I retire. I think I'll have a bit more of an appreciation for it and You know, people call me the the greatest of all time and I've managed to achieve that in 2018 winning my seventh world title but I sort of yeah I don't feel like I'm done yet so I always feel like there's something to work on and to improve on and like I have more potential so I think whilst I am the world number one at the moment that could get pulled away next week at the world championships you're sort of only as good as as your next race so that's what always inspires me and excites me but it is an incredible feeling to know that I've dedicated the last 15 years of my life to this sport and being the best I can be and that also ends up being the best in the world which is just amazing because at the beginning you know you don't set out to be the best in the world you just want to make it down the rapids you just want to be the best version of you. And then eventually you get a bit more competitive and you want to beat the others. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm definitely super competitive and, and always want to win. But at the end, I always want to do the best I can. I'm not winning every race, but I'm trying to win every race and I'm motivated to do that and to keep pushing myself and also the level of the girls. I think it's improving every year and it's super exciting to see.
0: Since sitting down with Jess for this interview, she's continued to push those limits taking out a gold medal in a new extreme slalom event at the World Championships in Slovakia. In the next episode of this miniseries, Game Changers, we're speaking with Seiya Sakakibara. When I got into the medical tent, I was looking at my arms, I was on the stretcher and I was like, no, please don't tell me I crashed. No, not the Olympics. I'm Marley Silva, your host, and this is Beyond the Ordinary, a Red Bull podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can discover more about Game Changers at redbull.com forward slash Changers.